Uh, I have another uh, quote here, I think that's um, uh, pretty interesting. Nelson Mandela said this, a leader is like a shepherd. He stays behind the flock, letting the most nimble go out ahead, whereupon the others follow, not realizing that along the way, they're being directed from behind. And so sometimes as a leader, um, it's not always that slam my fist on the table, do it because I said so, but a lot of times it's that unseen hand you're trying to lead and guide and direct. So, all right, great answers, great uh, insight. And so our next uh, session here is uh, Reverend Jenny Russell. She is going to come, and I appreciate her so much. She has, uh, of course, most people in this room probably know her and love her, sweet spirit, but also great insight and vice president of this great um, institution. And so let's give Sister Jenny Russell a big hand as she comes. Appreciate her so much. This round. Thank you. I um, I paid some people to be here this morning to be my uh, fan club. So if you hear people agreeing, I probably bought them a gift card. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, Today, I, I'm really thankful for Brother Bernard's um, session because I feel that um, this is going to piggyback off of that. We were joking last night because I said, oh, I have to follow you. Could, could you just do a mediocre job so that I don't look so bad? He told me he would, but he didn't listen to me. So, But I am glad you did that because I feel like I'm going to piggyback off of that because he kind of talked to you from a leadership perspective but I'm here to talk to you as the second chair. So on January 15, 2009, Flight 1549 left from LaGuardia Airport in New York City. Shortly after takeoff, the plane was struck by a flock of Canada geese that disabled both engines. This is the words from the captain. January 15, 2009 started just like 10,000 other days literally, and flight 1549 initially, like all those other flights for so long, was completely routine and unremarkable for the first 100 seconds. But this very suddenly, and I was aware of it at that time, became the worst day of my life. We were traveling at that point 316 feet per second, so I saw the birds about 300 football field lengths ahead, but not enough time to maneuver away from them. And then they filled the windscreen as if it were a Hitchcock film. And they struck the airplane along the leading edges of the wings, the nose, and into the center, the core of both engine, jet engines. Immediately, I could hear terrible noises from the machinery being damaged that I'd never heard in an airplane before. I could feel terrible vibrations I'd never felt on an airplane before. And then I received confirmation of what I believed had happened, what I could smell coming into the cabin air, the burning bird odor from the engines. And then the thrust loss was sudden, complete, symmetrically, bilaterally, both engines at once. It felt as if the bottom had fallen out of our world. The only training we'd ever gotten for water landing was a theoretical classroom discussion. I knew it was only a matter of a few minutes before our flight path intersected the surface of the earth. 
I had to choose the best place for that to happen. Having flown in the New York, into New York many times, I knew that there were only three options. There were only two runways that might be reachable. It turned out with reaction time, they were not. And the only other place in the entire New York metro area, one of the most densely developed areas on the planet, where it might be possible to even try landing a large jet airliner, would be the Hudson River. Our first officer, Jeff Skiles, I couldn't have had a better colleague that day or since. In a situation where the time pressure and the workload was so intense, we didn't have time to even talk about what had happened and what we should do about it. He and I were able to collaborate wordlessly by knowing intuitively in this developing crisis what we should do to help the other. Based on our own long experience, had Jeff not also had 20,000 hours of flying time like I had, had he not been a captain before, had he not been so experienced, he wouldn't have known either. So he made important suggestions at several points in the flight. He was silently cheering me on, so I had made each decision. He was silently cheering me on as I made each decision, but ready to intervene to check my performance if he thought I was making an error. Right before the landing, I asked Jeff a question. I said, got any ideas? Some may think that was a flippant remark, but it was not. It was just an indication of how deeply internalized these team skills are that I used to teach. I was saying to him, and he understood in context exactly what I meant. I've done everything I can do to help. Are there any other actions that I need to take that you can think of or that would help even a fraction? And Jeff's answer was, actually not. And he answered just like that. Not at all because he was insolent or not because he was resigned to an inevitable fate. Far from it. We were fighting to save every life to the very end. He answered that way because he knew we'd done all we could. And then finally, as we were approaching the water, again, Jeff collaborated with me wordlessly. He knew the final critical maneuver was for me to try to judge visually, looking at this featureless water train ahead where depth perceptions inherently difficult, the height at which to begin raising those to begin the landing, to trade some of our forward motion for a reduced rate of descent and to touch down and to achieve the proper slightly nose altitude as we touched the water. So Jeff began to call out to me airspeed and altitude as I was looking at the water ahead to help me judge the critical height. And we were coming down so rapidly, if I misjudged any of them by any fraction, we might start too soon and get too slow and hit hard or start too late and descend into the water too rapidly in the wrong altitude. And based upon the forces that Jeff and I felt in the cockpit as we slowed to a stop, it was obvious that the airplane was intact. It was stable. It was floating with people, and we're probably still okay at that point. And in the most, a most amazing coincidence, Jeff and I turned to each other at that moment in the same time, using the same words, said, well, that wasn't as bad as I thought. 
This was the account of pilot Captain Sullenberg and his first officer, Jeff Scott. This morning, we are here to take a few minutes to talk about an important team dynamic. Teams are important. We heard that all last night and this morning. Uh, it's not good to be alone. And it's important that we work together. But my task today is to talk about a particular part of the team. This is what I'm going to call today the first chair and the second chair leader. I understand this story was about life and death, and it's not comparable to the discussion today in that regard. But I am reminded from hearing the story the importance of others, the importance of relationships to an organization, the value it can add. If this is the model you are using, it has great potential or it has great pitfalls if it's not healthy. Okay, so this model may not be for everyone, uh, but I think there's some takeaways here for everyone. So I hope this lesson from the second chair is applicable to most everyone in the room today. I think it can apply to your team if you are here in a secular position, you're an entrepreneur, you're a nonprofit, or even a church capacity. I know there's several people in this room that have more experience in this area, but if you would allow me just a few moments, I want to share you, with you our journey that we took here at Urshan. And I hope that it's helpful and that you can use it in different ways. When I was approached to do this lesson about second chair leadership, I could have went a lot of different ways, but at the end of the day, I, I really thought I'm just going to break it down to three factors um, I think played in how we do it here. Are we perfect? No. We are not perfect. We are just like you. We're human. We have our challenges. We have finances. We have personnel. We have facilities. We have frustrations, just like you probably do in all of your own organizations. But this model has served us well um, up to this point. Um, our leadership could absolutely do this without a second chair. I am not saying that we are, uh, you know, that I'm the, this all in all. But as a second chair, um, I think that I have added to the team, and I think a second chair in, that you might have could add to your team. And then I'm going to follow it up with a short Q&A. Um, I have asked our present president and our past president if they could stay, and um, we're going to have a time of question and answer. So anything that I'm messing up right here, they can fix. Uh, so, but so, kind of be thinking about your questions because we want to be valuable uh, for you. So we want to be transparent. So you can ask us most anything, and I think that we will try our best to help you if you are in a similar uh, model. Maybe you are considering adding a second chair to your table. Your organization has grown to a place where you can't manage the staff alone. Uh, maybe the demands of the congregation are growing to the point that there are not enough hours in the day. And I think, Brother Bernard, you did a really good job of helping leaders see those points in delegation and different things like that. Maybe as a leader, you're tired and you find it difficult to remain at the level that you did when you were smaller. Maybe you are here today and you have a second with you. So whatever capacity, I hope that some, there are some takeaways for you here as a first chair or even a team member. 
Because remember, if you are a team member, you're still a leader, and you probably have uh, people under you. You have staff under you. So you could kind of utilize this as well. Maybe you are first in that particular incident, and you have seconds under you. So even though you are not an official second, I hope that maybe that some of the, the principles here that we're going to talk about will help you. The second chair, okay, in a church setting, this might be an executive pastor, an associate pastor, maybe an assistant pastor in a secular setting or a nonprofit. You might hear executive vice president, chief operating officer, vice principal, vice chair. Um, so those are just some of the labels that that's what a second is. But this is perhaps one of the most challenging positions that there is in, in an organization. Sometimes I think it looks like this as a second. this daring display by a 35-year-old wire-walking artist named Harry Davis. He's said to have created a record by remaining for 24 hours on a tightrope over the Olympic Stadium at Garmisch. Here, he gives a remarkable performance over a valley near the Tugsvitsa mountain. He even went so far as to have his dinner in midair after carrying it and the necessary furniture out to the giddy center of the wire. I must say, I think that's eating the hard way, but Harry Davis apparently lives for such death-defying acts. They say he intends to put on the same sort of show in America over the Niagara Falls. Well, that should make a good picture, too. Literally, that is how I feel someday. <laughs> okay. I would just dare say there are hundreds, if not thousands, of books written on how to become a great leader. We've just heard even a lesson uh, previously. Yet, I don't see a lot of conferences out there for us, the second person, the chair, second person. One person even called us first followers. The job description for this position varies from place to place. You don't really see a stereotypical description of this position. If you look at people, um, and there are probably people in this room right now, you're seconds. But we all look different, and we all have different talents. There's just a lot of gray areas when you talk about a second. I have passed out a um, paper for you guys to look at. And it is um, a, a description of what seconds are. So let's look at it real quick. So you might... Okay, here's the thing. You might be a nine wing four. You might be an orange, a yellow. You might be a tiger. You might be an INFG, J. You might be a sanguine. Okay, it's not about personality. But you as a leader, you know your style. And when you're looking for a second, you need to find somebody that complements you or is... Um, helping you in different ways. So here are some seconds. The, the doer, 
The doer gets things done. Effective number ones recognize that it's not their job to get involved in the delivery side of the business. The number one identifies the strategy, and it's the doer's job to implement and translate that into action. The transformer. Sometimes it's the role of the number two to transform a feature of the business, leaving the number one to maintain a stable and outward-facing perspective that gives stakeholders confidence during major times of change. The wise counsel. On occasions, organizations appoint a number one, or that number one is a founder of a business, who for all their brilliance would benefit from having someone as their number two whom they could turn to for advice and counsel. The counterbalance. The counterbalancing number two will often have a different set of leadership assets that provide a complementary perspective, enabling even better decisions to be made. The other half. Some executive leadership pairings between the number one and two resemble the best features of marriage or civil partnership. The other person completes the individual through their presence. They get the other person in a way that others don't. Such leaders work best when working in a deep partnership with another person and see their leadership role as being something they do together as opposed to any idea of hierarchy. On the back side, the successor. Sometimes the ideal of the number two as the natural successor to the number one is not unusual, an unusual occurrence. On occasion, the board or employing, employing organizations will seek to appoint a number two to make the future transition as smooth and trouble-free as possible. Not that such an appointment can ever be guaranteed. We've seen that ourselves in the past, but certainly many number twos are seen as the person most likely to. Organizations that seed great store in retaining or sustaining organizational culture will often see the appointment of the number two as a deliberate part of their succession strategy. The star player. Some organizations realize the only way they can retain the service of an outstanding individual is to promote them to the role of number two. The diplomat. Some number ones have a tendency to wreak havoc as a consequence of their mercurial behavior and dynamic attributes. Such leaders need a number two who has the necessary diplomatic skills to smooth things out and peacefully resolve difficult situations that might have been caused by the leader so that the overall organization strategy is not compromised. The mechanic, the number two who fulfills this role is of the mechanic is someone who understands the nuts and bolts of the business and how they interact as working parts. The mechanic can assist the number one in fixing the machine if it's not functioning optimally or, more importantly, know which levers to pull to make it work better. And the planner. All too often, the number one can be so focused on achieving their strategic goal by a given date that they ignore the need to achieve things in a logical, sequential, and com compliant manner who does not put the achievement of the strategy or the long-term survival of the organization at risk. In such circumstances, there's a strong need for a number two. I want you to just take a minute. What, who are you as a leader? And what do you need? Because sometimes a number two will fill different places here. But I just want you to take a second. Well, who are you and what do you need? If you were having to have a number two, what do you need? As you can see, we're teachers, and sometimes we want you to do homework. 
Does anybody want to jump up and tell me what their number two should look like? Do you need a number two? The doer? You need a doer. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I get that. Okay. All right. So think about that. Keep this. I mean, it, it may be helpful to you. I, I just think that I wanted to give you something to take away. But before we dive into how our model worked for us, let's, stay, let's lay down what a second leader really is. The second chair is both leader and follower, striking a delicate balance between the two. That's why I showed you the tightrope. We're not just an assistant. We're leaders and you depend upon us to act and initiate certain things. But at the same time, we're followers. We're supposed to follow you as leaders. If we're functioning as a true second chair, we're making decisions that affect the organization. And we're carrying out your vision. That's what we do. We're here to follow the leader. And if you're holding the role of a second here today, for any other reason than this, you will most likely struggle. We have to keep our own selves in check, our egos. Because as leaders, we're used to taking the reins, we're used to doing some things, but we have to be careful that it's not about our agenda. Um, on the flip side, to be successful, you have to be invited to the table by the first chair. And if you are not invited, you're also going to struggle because you have someone that says they need a number two, but they don't know how to treat you as a number two. And you're going to internally struggle because you're trying to fight for the seat at the table. You have to be invited. And I, we have been very lucky here. I have, have very good leadership, um, and uh, we'll go into that in a little bit here. You are answering and deferring to the leader, but at the same time, you're helping to lead them, and there has to be a trusting relationship. And if it's not there, it's going to be tough. I think this is why this particular position needs to get it right. A first chair, a pastor, a president, a CEO, must have a strong relationship with those on his team. We've talked about that last night. We all know that leadership is relational. So the leader has to be connected to the team. But he or she also has to have a strong relationship and trust with a second. This is a unique relationship. And I think for us here, um, and this is a whole other lesson, but gender doesn't play a part in this. It's professional. I, I know as a female working with males, um, it is not uncomfortable for us because we have a trusting professional relationship. So um, again, that could be a whole nother dis uh, lesson, but Mike Bonham and Roger Patterson defined the second chair as a subordinate leader, a person in a subordinate role whose influence adds value throughout the organization. Uh, what that means is that the second chair is expected to lead, but that person is still under the leadership of another. This can be a place of tension without the right attitude. It's not easy to be a subordinate. 
and a leader. That's not how most leaders are wired. No, no, I'm not saying not be a servant. We all, as leaders, are servants. But it's hard to be subordinate under somebody when you're used to being the leader. And um, because you're used to making the tough calls. You're handling decisions. You're carrying certain loads. So on a daily basis, sometimes you're doing certain things, so your mind is focused on leading. But at the same time, you are not the main leader. You have a leader above you. So the subordinate leader paradox is challenging to successfully balance because it's relationally intensive and partially dependent on two people, you and your leader. Subordination is recognizing and accepting that you, you don't lead, you, you follow the leader. It's acknowledging that you don't have the final authority, nor do you have the ultimate responsibility. I'm reminded that when things get heavy around here, because I'm boots on the ground, I'm here every day, so I feel a lot of the weight, but when I feel stretched and overwhelmed, both of the presidents I've had in the past at different points have to gently remind me that ultimately it's not my responsibility, it's their responsibility. The buck stops with them. But let me take a second, let me talk to the seconds in the room here. It's really more than about the duties, though. If you're a second, it's an attitude of serving. It's, it's really a calling to, to be a second. This type of leadership requires a spirit of loyalty that is expressed in your conversations and your actions. Both my present and my past president know that they never have to worry about my loyalty. Does this mean that I always agree with every, every decision or have agreed with every decision? Well, we'll talk about that during question and answer, maybe. They don't want a puppet. They don't want a yes person. But I would never undermine them to, my, to our team for my agenda. Because as we said last night, we don't know our heart. So when you have a team, you can, as a second, have agendas that you don't even realize. So when the first is not there, they're trusting you, but you have an, uh, you have an opportunity to set your own agendas. That's not, that's not what we need to do. But if, um, if I disagreed with, with my leadership, I would never do it publicly. I would never embarrass them. I'm gonna come to them privately. And I mean, they'll, we'll talk about that too. We, we, we've had private discussions. Um, whether you see yourself as a second for life or a first chair in training, whether your ro role is vocational or volunteer, subordination is not always gonna be easy for you. Let's, let's take a moment to reflect, okay? So pull out your phone, write it down, but how are you gonna to respond to the following questions? Okay, here's your, here's your choices. Fight, flight, that means walk away and feel like you're gonna give up. Or number three, stay involved without confrontation. You're gonna accept the decision for what it is, but you're still gonna stay engaged. So here's the first question. So write it down, write down this answer. When your first chair goes against your recommendation, so that may be even if you're a staff member, uh, when your first chair goes against your recommendation on a particular decision, what do you do? Do you want to fight 
Gen Zs? <laughs> Do you want to fight flight? You want to walk away and don't want to talk about it? Or do you stay involved? Number three, do you stay involved without confrontation? You accept the decision, but you're going to stay engaged. What do you do as a second? Which one of those do you do? Because I'm wanting you to think about what you are as a second. Okay. As first, as your leader, how do you feel when your second goes against your recommendation? Do you want to fight? Do you want to flight? Or are you going to stay engaged? Okay. Number two, when your first chair questions a decision that you have made or an action that you're taking, do you want to fight? Do you want to run? Or are you going to stay engaged? And as a first chair, how do you handle their questioning of your authority? This is your partner. This is somebody that you brought in. As a first chair, are you going to fight? Are you going to put up a wall? Are you going to run? You're gonna f- or are you going to stay involved? And we're gonna, are you going to have a, a um, are you going to stay involved without confrontation? Okay. So. This, these are the three things I think that helped us here at Urshan. Number one, influence. Well, you can put that slide up for me. Influence is one of the most important leadership tools you can have as a second chair. Influence with your first chair and with those around you. Again, you know, it's that tightrope thing. You've got to have influence with your leader, but you've got to have influence with the team. Because you're helping your leader work with them. One reality is that influence is harder to obtain for seconds than it is for firsts. You know, they preach weekly sermons, or they're guiding the staff, or they're very visible at different things organically. As a result, influence for the first leader accrues more quickly and at a greater level than the secondary level. As a second, you may have deep influence but it takes a longer time to do that um, in an organization. So this is what happened for us. So I'm going to give you um, our beginning times, and then we, I, we, have a, we had transition. So I'm going to give you kind of a both uh, settings. When Brother Bernard first brought me on, um, he was very intentional. You know, there are still times I think I'm not sure he knew what he was doing, but I'm thankful for <laughs> for that. Um, <laughs> my husband probably thinks, what happened? We had, we had a strong foundation. He knew who I was. Um, I, worked, I worked almost every other job at UGST, so he knew me well. He, he knew I was crazy, so he got what, you know, he got it. So, um, but he knew how I handled things. So, he, whenever he gave me this job, whenever he was on campus, and he kind of talked about this even in his, in his lesson. But whenever he was on campus, he would always recognize the team for their work. But he was very intentional to put me in different categories and to make sure that the students and the team understood that I represented him. He was building influence for me from the beginning because, 
you know, as a leader, everybody's going to say, oh, you know, the president, you know, they're going to they're going to do what he needs. But he, if he needed me to be able to do my job daily, I had to have influence. So I will say the same thing with transition. When Brother Coltharp came on board, he could have had a different second person. But he he kept me on, which I'm very grateful. Thank you for keeping me on. Um, but he was also very intentional. Um, he, I remember the very first banquet we had. You know, he's the brand new president, so they're like, okay, we want you to come up and say something at the end. He looked at me and he said, come on, sis. I'm like, there, no, they need you. No, no, you come on. He had me come up there and stand with him symbolically. And that helped alleviate the tension for the team because they saw that he was working in a similar fashion as the previous president in the second role. I could not act on behalf of them if I didn't have their influence. So they both lent that to me and they were very public about it. So if you are a leader, you have to make sure your team and your church or whatever group you're working with, they have to know that you trust that second person. So you have to give them some of your influence. Here's the thing. If you don't do that, people are going to go around your second person. People are going to go in the back door. And they're going to go to him or her, and your second person is going to have their hands tied because there's no authority for them. So chaos would have ensued if the, either one of them had not given me some of their um, influence. So let's take another moment to reflect. If you were a second, how much credibility do you think you have currently with your team? Does the team see you representing the leadership? Do they trust you on a deeper level because your first has helped establish that? And as firsts, how do you make sure that the second gains influence they need to do their job? And I, again, I think, Brother, Brother Bernard, you said it. Um, there's a lot of motivation behind when we give authority. So how do you give influence to your second, and do you do it easily? Okay. Number two, I think what helped us here at Urshan was trust. A variety of characteristics are important for a person to be successful in a leadership role. We all know that. Competence, good interpersonal skills, dependability, integrity, and commitment. But for the second chair leader, there has to be trust. Trust is the foundation for an effective partnership between a first and a second chair. This, is ta this takes time. One successful chair um, in a book I read reported that it took a full three years before they had the trust and freedom to do their job. So right relationships, knowing your boundaries, high level of respect, honestly, it all takes time. The first chair has to know you are looking through the same lens as them. 
They have to know you have their back for them to give you some of this authority. No matter what the challenge you have um, with an issue, you got to see it through their eyes because you have to keep the overall organization in mind. You have to learn to look through their leadership lens. When I took the position of executive vice president, Brother Bernard brought me into every meeting with him. And he talked about that. I shadowed him, basically. Um, he was intentional about mentoring me to see how things were going. He was showing me how he was thinking. Um, and I think he also did it sometimes so that people would see us together. And so when they saw me, they saw him. And those meetings shaped my thought process back then. I began to think and, and, and anticipate how things, how he would respond. By the time he left office, there were oftentimes I was making decisions and letting him know after I'd done it because I knew that was how he would respond and I didn't want to have to bother him and I knew he trusted me. Brother Coltharp is the same way. Um, he and I talk a lot, but when he first came in, we spent time together so that I could know, know how he was thinking. Um, he, 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 he sends me books sometimes, or he'll tell me about a podcast because he, he's wanting me to think kind of the way he does. Um, so when you look through that lens, it's going to shape how you handle things. Strong, trust-based relationships flourish in an environment in which there's honesty and integrity. So I really think that um, if you are a second, you may have different leadership, but that doesn't mean that uh, any previous leadership is wrong, but you are following the leader that you have at that moment because you are, it's your job to um, cast the vision for them, to fulfill what they need for you at that organization. So Brother Coltharp, he trusts me to make certain decisions on a daily basis. He trusts I'm not going to burn the place down. Maybe sometimes we want to burn the place down. Um, but that comes because he knows I'm not going to leave him out of the loop. Trust is about being connected with your leader. Um, on the flip side, you know, like Brother Bernard, I had to have that season to learn uh, leadership and how the process is for each one of them. So seconds in the room... It's, it's not our place to lead without the leader. We are here to carry out the vision of the leadership. And that doesn't mean that we're mindless or we don't have our own thoughts. There was a time that I was someplace and someone said, oh, you're only there because you always agree with them. No, that's not true. Um, I don't always agree, but... They, they want me to have my own um, opinions. We had a very minor hiccup in time where I had to be here alone. We were looking for our lead, new leader. Brother Bernard had to step away, but he was still there as a chancellor capacity. But they let me continue to lead and think. I, you know, we were looking for a new property. We knew that we needed to grow. Everything didn't get put on hold. So being a second doesn't mean you're a puppet. You do have roles. They want you to continue moving forward. 
They want you to dream. But along with trust comes transparency. Trust has to be there so you can speak openly with each other. I'm going to say when we went through the transition, it was really difficult for me because I, I knew I was a second. So my whole life was going to be dependent on the first. And Brother Bernard and I had lots of discussions about future presidents and names. And, and he was always good to let me say what I felt at the time. Now, was I, was I going to make the, you know, the final decision? No. But he will let me have those open dialogues with him. Um, with both presidents, I have had open and candid conversations. I mean, coming in a transition, it's not an easy thing. But Brother Coltharp and I have had many open conversations about um, the jobs or our expectations. Um, and I wasn't afraid to say what I needed to say. He's not afraid what he needs to say. Um, you know, there's times like, if you need to get rid of me, you know, you know, I understand. And he also says to me, hey, if I'm not doing something I need to do, you need to tell me. So we have some very open conversations. So first chairs, this means you also have to let your second chair behind the mask. It, as leaders, we all at times wear masks. But you have to, you have a special relationship here with, with your first and second leadership. It's not like the rest of the team. You have to trust the team. They have to trust you. But there's some particular uh, trusting things that have to happen between a first and second to have a healthy relationship. So let's talk about that. We have to be healthy. Um, I'm not going to go into specifics here. There's no this. But there was a season when we started UC, and then we were working on accreditation. There was a, it was a lot of craziest thing going on. Brother Bernard may write a book someday. Maybe he'll leave names in. He may not. We'll let him tell those stories. Those are not mine to tell. Maybe you can ask him during the question and answer time. Um, but we ha you have to have transparent conversations. And here's the thing. You, um, as a second, have to know your leader. So you might... They may, they may come in and they're, 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 you can tell there's something wrong. They're quiet. There's something going, you're thinking, is it? Because we're all human. So you're thinking, did I do something? Did something happen? I didn't do right. We're human. But you got to be able to go in there and say, hey, Brother Coulthard, <laughs> everything okay? And I got to trust that he's going to be transparent with me. And he is. Um, so you, but you also, as a second, have to put down your masks. You got to trust the leader because we get insecure sometimes. I'll be honest. I mean, during transition, I didn't always know where I stood. It wasn't my leadership's fault. It was me being human. So if I wasn't involved in a meeting or if, or if I wasn't part of this discussion, in my head, you can ask my husband, because inside my head, it can get a little wacky. Woo, 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 woo. Um, but I had to play it out. What? What? Why, does it, why wasn't I a part of that conversation? What? How come he left me out? Well, he didn't leave me out. 
there might have been something going on. But if I don't have that transparency, if I don't put that mask down, I cannot work with him and he can't work with me. Because he, I'm going to become an insecure person. And we know how it happens when you're insecure. The benefits are not limited to you and to your first chair. As the level of trust and communication increases, the entire team becomes better unified. The relationship between a first and a second is very public. People can tell when there's stuff going on. I mean, your church, your, your business, people can tell. But if you model good, healthy relationships, it helps the team. It, it helps build a culture. The team on the other side of this as a second has to trust you as a second. They have to know that you are bringing to the leadership their concerns, their issues, but they got to know and trust you as a second because they're not talking to the leader always. You are. So you're as a team, and that's a whole other lesson as well on um, trust with your team and your leader because you are the middle person. But the leader also has to trust that you are bringing needs without agendas. As much as possible, you need to be healthy you need to be prayed up because you need to take things to your leader without bias. And, you know, we all do that. There might be somebody on your team, you're too close to a situation. So when you bring it to the leader, it's coming from your lens. So you have to be prayed up enough to say, okay, I am representing the team here, and maybe, my, maybe I'm not right. Because so, your leader is going to make decisions based upon trusting you. And your team is trusting you that you're taking it to them right. So here's your reflection question. How does your first chair perceive you? Are you seen as loyal, trustworthy, and competent, able to bring things about the team in an unbiased way? And for the first, how does your second chair perceive you? Would they say you are open and able to share information? Do they feel close to you? Are they able to talk to you? And lastly, I think what helped us um, build a, a good model here is communication. Communication, we have to have an open line of communication. Communication is one of those intangible things with huge benefits if it's done from a good place, coming from trust. Communication is both a benefit and an essential, an essential element for a second chair. You want to maintain a healthy relationship. I have worked with two presidents, so their leadership styles are very similar in some ways, but they're very different in other ways. Um, so I needed to learn how to communicate with my leadership. How do they want to work? How do they receive information? Because if you're going to frustrate your leader if you don't understand how they want to communicate. So, Brother Coltharp and I, we meet weekly. We have a standing meeting. If it's on Zoom or if it's in person, we communicate every week about what's going on at the school. Um, Brother Bernard and I, we talked a lot too, but we did more of emailing because he was general superintendent. He was everywhere, here or there. I remember... When I first started, he was out of the country. 
I was on this job three weeks. Our choir director quit. The main football team, whatever they want to call it sometime in public. I didn't, I, I, what am I supposed to do? So he and I are emailing back and forth. He's, I don't know, I think he was in Ecuador or someplace. I couldn't reach him all the time. But so we emailed. But with both of them, I knew how best they needed information from me. And um, it's important that there is communication between you. Um, communication's a two-way street. If you're the leader and you don't share information with your second and, he, and you hear about it, what the team hears about it, it's, it's, a, it's a shaky ground because they're hearing stuff the same time the team is, so they don't know how to process it yet. They don't know what you need from them because if you're sitting in a meeting and this is the first time you're hearing about it, you're trying to set, how, how does he want me to respond? What does he need me to do? Um, so you have to make sure you're talking to your, your second all the time as well. It's, it's important. But on the flip side, if you are a second, you need to be relaying information all the time. I try to filter what I need to tell, you know, the president, but here, here's this famous saying, <laughs> no surprises. So I'm always going to, if it's either in an email or a phone call or a text message, if there's something going on this campus, I need to make sure that the president knows that. And if you're a second, maybe it's a church situation. Maybe it's a district situation. Maybe it's a, you know, you're an entrepreneur. But your leadership should never be caught off guard. So reflection. Number one, do you feel you have good communication with your leadership? If you do or if you don't, why not? And as a second, do you feel you know what's going on with the team? If you're a leader, do you know what's going on in the business, in the church? Does your second keep you in the loop? I think there are people in this room that you have giftings and callings to be a second. You are a servant. Um, before I had this job, my husband and I were associate pastors. That pastor had not had an assistant or someone helping him for 20 years. The church was really rather big, like three to 400 people. He couldn't continue to grow it. But my husband has a gifting to be a second. A lot of times because they, he knew that pastor knew he could trust him. So I watched that for seven years. And I, could t and I took it in here. Um, but there's leaders in this room. I really feel there's leaders in this room that are tired. Maybe you need to think about a second. Don't be afraid of it. If you get the right person, it's the best thing you could ever do. As we said last night, doing things alone is not good. So just because you have a second doesn't mean you're not a good leader, but you got somebody who's going to come along behind you and, and be there and support you. So I want to invite our president, Brother Coltharp, and our past president, Brother Bernard, thank you for staying. I know you're very busy, um, to join me up here. And Brother Wisdom's going to moderate. If you have questions, now's the time you can bring them up.
if I've messed any of this up, they can fix it, and let's just have a little bit of fun as we end our session. Sounds good. All right, let's give Sister Russell a big hand, wonderful lesson on being a second chair. Set in the middle here. So I think we all... Slide this out of the way. That's heavy. That's why I didn't move it. I think we first just want all the dirt on the uh, urchin. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, all right, so I have a question. I'll start out. Uh, Sister Russell, this is for you. Um, when I was a young man and starting out in church, I was starting to preach a little bit and uh, didn't really have a position in the church, but I would preach, and it probably wasn't that good, but I had a couple of people that would come up and tell me how great it was, and it was wonderful, and some of the best sermons they'd heard. And I realized eventually that it was more just um, – uh, trying to get a dig on the pastor and kind of positioning us against each other. So most people, if they're going to come with a critique or a criticism, it's probably going to come to you versus uh, to the leadership. And so how do you handle that when people come to you, you're more accessible, maybe they're intimidated to talk to the president. How do you handle those critiques and criticisms? Mm, that's a good question. Um, what I do is I always try to think what what I want somebody to do if I was the leader. So I always say, hey, you know, I'll talk it through with them. Well, it sounds like you're upset or you have an issue. Have you talked to Brother Coltharp? Have you talked to Brother Bernard? Well, no, no, I don't, I don't feel like I can. Well, I try to encourage that because I find when they do, that clears up the communication, but they also know that if they're not here, my job is n not to be that, um, I think, maybe replacement or pacify. My job is to make sure that the president and the staff or the students, I mean, even with students, I, I encourage them to go because um, that's, if we want to be strong, we want to be healthy, there has to be trust. And if they know that I'm going to have these conversations with them privately, it's just going to build up, I think, a negative, toxic environment. So I always try to encourage them to go or, hey, do you want to go? Do you want me to go with you? Let's, we'll talk because I, I know that that's not the heart of, of, of what maybe they said or did. Good answer. All right, Brother um, Bernard, Brother Colthart, I have a question for you guys. When you have a, a second um, chair leader, you're looking for someone with drive, ambition, um, but then they're also a second chair. And so how do you balance that where you have someone with drive, ambition to be a leader, but then they're also uh, serving as a, as a uh, from, from a second chair, from a, uh, she used different times, you know, follow and a leader. So, so how do you balance, get that balance of getting the right person? Well, Sister uh, Russell did a good job of talking about different types of second chairs. So some, in some ways, it depends on that. And I was reflecting myself because the first 11 years of my ministry, full-time ministry, I was the second person in two different environments, very different. Uh, and then since then, I've always had a strong second person. So yes, I always wanted someone with ambition, drive, who could do a good job. So the first challenge is to keep them... Uh, what's the right word, not only motivated, but keep them challenged. So as they developed in, in their own leadership ability and as our relationship developed, 
I tried to give them more responsibilities. And if you're in a growing environment, that's easier to do. So one way to keep them uh, excited and satisfied is to keep giving them more stuff or keep giving them a more significant role or, or modify their role as time goes on. And so that was one thing I did. The, uh, another thing was at different times we would talk about their options. So maybe at some point the second person needs to launch their own. So I did not try to inhibit them or uh, force them to have that conversation without me. But sometimes I would initiate it and say, you know, let, let's look at the future. Where do you see yourself in several years? Do you, you see yourself content or, or in this role? Or do you see yourself launching out on your own? If so, uh, I'll be willing to support you. I'll be willing to start a process. I'm not asking for you to leave, but I want to make sure that you have your own track where you feel fulfilled. And some are going to be a second person by the nature of their calling. Others, it is a stepping stone to one day launching on their own. So you have to discern that. So um, those are a couple things that I've tried to do. Yeah. Sure. Brother Cothar, how do you keep that second chair uh, fulfilled in, in their ministry or their leadership role as well? Yeah, I think uh, part of it is you realize that they have a calling to do what they're doing. And so part of my responsibilities is to make sure the team members that serve with me, that it's not just about, you know, maybe the vision or the mission that I am um, trying to see realized for the organization, but I also feel like my responsibility is to see that what God is calling them and doing in their life to remove roadblocks where they can be fulfilled in what they're calling. Because if they're fulfilled in their role, that's just going to elevate the entire team and organization. And so it, it has to be that serving one another uh, part of that as well. Absolutely. All right. Any questions? Just raise your hand. I'll come out there to you. Here we go. How might looking for a second man be different than looking for a successor? If you're a lead pastor and you're thinking, I, would, I think it's better for the church to have a longer runway. So it's not a quick succession plan. How might those considerations be different? It, it depends on the stage. So let's say you're a senior pastor that maybe you're 60 or 65. You are needing a successor, but you might want a person to come alongside as a second man, either stated or unstated, but it's kind of a trial. If you're younger or it's a longer time, you might be looking more for a true second person, and they may or may not develop into a successor. So I think if you're looking for a successor, you're looking for a short time, and you're looking for a transition. And my recommendation is that be clearly spelled out in writing with a date. Uh, and you involve, if it's a church context, you involve the church board, because otherwise you build up frustration. If you make promises or you have a verbal conversation, frequently those get changed or misunderstood. So uh, if you're looking, I, I hope I'm answering your question properly, but if it's a short, shorter term, I think you're, you're definitely looking for someone who can take over and take over in a sooner time and you have a clear understanding agreement that that's what both of you contemplate. But if you have a much longer time frame, I think your focus should be on who's a good second person that will help me be more effective. Now, if it turns out 
that they could become a successor, you might find that out in the process. But I don't know that if you're looking at a 10 or 15 or 20 year time frame, I don't know that it's wise to prioritize who could be my successor. I think it's wiser to prioritize who can expand, help, help us grow, who can help me, uh, depending on what I, I feel my needs are, like the sheet. Do I need someone to compliment me? Do I need someone to help execute? You know, what do I need? And if that turns out to be a successor, fine, but that's not my primary focus. And if you do have a longer runway, you might try to build a relationship with several people. You might have more than one assistant. You might have a minister who comes frequently and has an ongoing relationship with the church. So you got three or four people from a pool that down the line could fill that role. And then as the time gets closer, then you narrow it down. Uh, so I hope that, that answered your question. Yeah, I would say also, uh, I look at it maybe a little bit different. Of course, I have never been through a succession where I have uh, turned the church over. I have succeeded someone. But I think about here at Urshan, uh, for instance, Sister Russell, who was executive vice president, um, was very sort of open about not wanting to be president, even when those discussions were going on. And even the, the church where I pastor, we, we do have an executive pastor that could, has pastored before, could take and be great. Uh, Greg would do great wherever he pastored at. But also like Jessica, who's here, she really serves in that role, um, but it's not maybe the prototypical like minister in a local church. Uh, she's somebody that very much gets the things done, compliments me. Uh, and, and so I think maybe even what we are looking at, what that second chair looks like can be different. And sometimes it is with succession in mind or somebody who can fill in that role, but sometimes we need somebody who's not going to be in that role that can help uh, be a team member and make sure we're successful. Sister Russell, you got anything to add to that? You agree, disagree with everything they said? No, I agree. Okay, I, yeah. all right, just making sure. I agree. All right, <laughs> all right, any other question? Another question thought I saw at hand? Yes. Um, so this question's for whomever. Um, basically, as a leader, I guess, uh, let me take you a step, step back. Um, with confrontation, the way I deal with confrontation sometimes, um, either being under a leader and I don't agree with something, I tend to want to fight. You know, um, if it's something on um, that I think could be better or could work better, I want to fight. But it would when I am the leader over something, and someone doesn't want to follow, I tend to have a hard time or struggle with confronting that. And so um, I guess my question is, how would you deal with he almost headstrong personalities or people that have, not with issues, because I know with issues you can kind of keep it um, within like a, uh, like a small, small confrontation or what, whatnot, but with personalities that are consistent uh, how would you deal with headstrong personalities that tend to be more, um, not disruptive, but like aggressive in that sense? Okay, so if you're the second person and you're talking about a leader who's very strong, you have to think, what is the most effective way to communicate and to influence? So probably confronting your leader is not going to be a good way. 
So you have to be diplomatic. You have to think of how can I present the need or the problem in a very objective way to say it will be in your best interest to consider this. Not I'm right and you're wrong. It would be here's an issue. I think this would be the best way to approach it. And so I think to your leader, you have to be non-confrontational. It doesn't mean you have to shrink away from things. You should bring it to them. That's your job. But do it in a way that they're most likely to respond. So don't do it in a way that attacks their ego. Do it in a way that respects them. But you're just trying to help them out, and you're presenting a problem, and maybe even you have a proposed way it could be handled most diplomatically. And at first, they may discount it, but then later they think about it and they'll do what you say. Even after they told you they wouldn't, they might go ahead. So if you're the second person, that's the way. If you're the first person and you've got a headstrong subordinate, I think you respect them, but give them clear lines. And if they violate those lines, jerk their chain, pull them back in. If they're going to be strong to you, you can be strong back to them. Not unkind, not mean, but just firm. I mean, some people... Like I say, some people take a gentle suggestion. Some people, you have to hit them on the head with a two-by-four before they listen to you. And so if, if you've got a subordinate that's capable but has that tendency, you just have to say, look, I'm in charge. I'll listen to you. I might be wrong, and you might be right. But if you approach me that way, you're never going to get what you want. So you're going to have to color between the lines if you're going to work for me. Now, in either place, if you if it's just dysfunctional, you may have to, if you're the second person, there may be a time where you just have to turn in your resignation and go somewhere else. Uh, or if you're the first guy, there may be a time where you have to tell a person, I'm, I'm very sorry, you're a brilliant person, but it's just not working. And since I'm the first guy, I have to have a second guy that I can work with. And you're not that one, so I'm sorry, but God bless you. We'll help you in your ministry, but goodbye. Okay, and I'll add to that as well from a second point of view. Um, I think you have to look at it from different perspectives as well. Um, culturally, you know, we joke a little bit about Gen Z's, millennials, or whatever. You know, my opinion needs to be heard. But we also have to come from a biblical perspective of authority. So whenever, as a second, I want to fight, I still have to look how biblically should I do this because I need to handle this in, 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 the, in the right way, in a heart, heartfelt way. But I also think you have to have emotional intelligence. Um, again, we're not naming names or anything here, but uh, okay. we've worked with people. And I was on this thread one time, and this person just kept coming back and coming back at one of my, and I won't tell you which, which leader it was, but kept coming back at this leader. Um, they just weren't using emotional intelligence either. You have to know how, you got to read read them personally too, right? Because they are gonna maybe listen to you in a certain at a certain time, but you got to know that you got to read that as well. So you know this person kept coming back, and you could tell the you know the exchange back and forth, and the you know the president at that you know was looking at the email, and I saw the response, and I'm thinking, oh, you're just not really using any emotional intelligence here as as a staff member. Um, so I so I would say that too. You want to fight. Maybe that's your personality, but you like we said here, there's a way to do it and how to handle it. So emotional intelligence, being having your heart right, 
and timing. All right. All right. Got enthusiastic hands in the back here. Which one? You guys want to arm wrestle for it? This is a real life situation that happened to me about 35 years ago. Um, so I was like two or something when it happened. But um, I'm still to this day not sure we completely handled it right. But we had moved to another district. We're involved in a position in the church. They had a large Christian school. We were instructors in the school and also youth pastors. About six months into the position, we could see that the pastor uh, saying some things across the pulpit that seemed like he was getting a doctrinal air. Very, con we were very concerned. So it probably goes back to that fight or flight or stay without compromise. Struggled with, we had some influence with obviously the students in the school as well as the young people trying to balance that with being loyal to the pastor, concerned with the direction the church was going, which did eventually completely leave uh, the truth. How long do you stay in that kind of situation, trying to positively influence a little bit from the, you know, just from the second seat? And when is it, you, do you need to just leave? Well, if, if you're a second person, you have to realize your influence is limited. So I think you have to gauge, are you able to influence the first person and their direction? If you are, then it might be worth sticking around. If you're able to moderate or slow down or change or hang in there until that leader decides to leave. So I think you have to gauge if you're in the second position to what extent I'm, I'm able to influence the, the, the decision maker or to what extent I'm able to hold things together until that person decides just to walk away. But if that person is not going to walk away and that person is not going to change, then you're fooling yourself to think you can do much in a productive way. And the sad thing is you have a burden for the people, so you want to hang around for them. But be realistic. What good can I do? I can't really do much for them. Now, if you can hold the leader accountable through various means, you know, depending on what it is, there's a church board, there's a district board, there may be, if the, if the situation can be brought to their attention in such a way that they can deal with the leader and you can be part of the process of keeping things together, picking up the pieces, it may be worth sticking around. But if you're mainly sticking around for the sake of the people whom you love and have a burden for, that's understandable, but you're probably not going to do much good in the long run. And in fact, leaving may actually be the best signal for those people under the circumstances. So I think there is a danger of overstaying. And then if you have a family, you have to, you have to consider how is it affecting your children, for example. Uh, so my, my answer in summary is, if you feel like you are part of the solution of helping change the first person or holding the first person accountable or salvaging it if the first person's gone, that's worth maybe sticking around. But if you are just trying to hold things together uh, and, and make people feel good under the circumstances, well, you can't solve that problem. It's above your pay grade. So... It, it, probably you'll have to leave. Yeah, I would say I can compromise my preferences, but I can't compromise my convictions and values. 
And if, if it's going against my values, I'm not going to be any good in that environment anyway because um, I, I can't hide that. You know, to, to really do the work that we want to do, we have to put our heart into it. And if, you're, if it's going against your value system and your convictions, you're not going to be able to put your heart into it, and it's going to become a drag. And, it, and sometimes it is that disconnecting that does make the difference as well, is realize, hey, there's something that's really going on. Hopefully leaders value uh, the second share people in their life because we can be focused on what we're doing. And sometimes when that second chair person says, hey, I want to bring this to your attention, uh, I know in the people in my life that do that, it causes me, oh, you know what, I better slow down and think a little bit because if they are using that language, this is something I need to pay attention to. Because when you have a very competent second chair, it's very easy just to let them run with what they're doing. But then when they say, hey, we need to talk or this, I'm like, okay, we need to slow down. If that, that, uh, that uh, ear is not there, and it's not value. It's going to be very difficult to again make the positive impact going forward. All right. I have a question for Sister Russell, but I did want to make a comment. I appreciate both Brother Bernard and Brother Colfarb for trusting a woman to sit in this position for these many years. Um, I know that that's not something that would probably be typical, but I love that we have and appreciate that so much. So, Sister Russell, I have known you for quite a while, and I've seen you in these transitions that you've made from first coming to UGST to Vice President under Brother Bernard and now under Brother Colthart. And you have remained and led in a position of confidence but grace. And I think that as a woman in the organization, sometimes in those positions, there is... Um, influence or maybe a pushing to lead more aggressively and, um, you know, just kind of from that, that aggressive side. And, you know, I've watched you. You are very influential. You, you have your license working on your doctorate. Like, you have grown and, and expanded your ministry, but yet you have remained ever graceful but ever confident. So my question is, do you get that kind of that subtle push maybe to be more aggressive and how and why have you remained the way that you are as far as just being confident but also you know showing such grace in you know when you lead from that second chair okay um well I, I agree with you I think part of it has been because I have had these two men in my life they they have always um encouraged me to be who I am um, and you're right, as a female leading, uh, especially at a, at a school where there are very strong personalities, a lot of ministers, yeah, balancing that out ha has been an interesting journey. But, yeah, I would say that at one point early on, um, I, I did have a, a few staff members that would question me, like, why don't you handle that? But I don't think it's necessarily a gender thing. I think it's it's a leadership thing. Um, I knew that if, in a particular incident, I I closed down a meeting because of some things that were happening, and I was questioned by a staff member later. Why didn't Why didn't you just call that out? Well, it wasn't necessarily just because of gender. I mean, obviously so, a little bit because they would say, "Well, you're that angry woman," but. <laughs> 
well, you know how it goes. <laughs> but I mean, they would have said that if I was a man too, maybe. But I, I knew that I had to be true to my personality. And so if I would have confronted that at that moment, it would have not been a good thing. That, that I would have lost credibility or relationship with them at the time. So then, then the next time, as Brother Bernard said in, in his lesson, then it would be, I had to pick and choose my battles. I, I would say that it, it is a difficult thing to do, whether you're a female or a male in leadership. You have to learn who you are. It's your, you have to learn your identity. Um, so I think for me, um, I have good mentors. I mean, I know I can go to either one of these men. Um, they are gonna, they're going to tell me honestly about some things. Yeah, you should handle that or you shouldn't handle that. They're going to be honest with me, too, because I think that you have to be very careful how you handle your team. I mean, it, it's, it's relationships. So as a, as a, if you're asking me as a female, I think it's, um, it's just being true to who you are and how you are. Because there are other, you know, females that lead differently than I do. So I don't really think it's female. I think it's leadership style. Hi, so y'all have been leading for a while, but can you think of a time when you were younger and starting in your calling and in what God had for you, and you had to lead groups of people that were maybe culturally different or different age groups, and I see a lot of, I guess, and maybe because I come from like a Hispanic culture and like that emphasizes honoring your elders and submitting to authority, which isn't bad, but... I know that when I've been in charge, for example, of a music team or um, a worship set, that sometimes the older people will kind of give pushback because they're older and they've been around longer and you should listen to them. And how do you, like, I guess, honor them without, but at the same time establishing and emphasizing that you're the one in charge and that God called you to be in the place that you are in? Yeah, let me take a stab at that first. I, I went into a couple different leadership roles, and I was very young uh, many times um, for years. Would, would have been the youngest person in the room, uh, even then, even when I became pastor. You have to have secure, you have to be secure, and you have to have confidence in your calling and your competency, which you can do. And so then it just takes time of proving that self, you know. It's like they say about old friends. You can have new friends, but you can't have new old friends. It takes time to build those relationships. And so you can't take it personally. Uh, you have to realize that as you are faithful and you demonstrate the gifts, the callings that God has for you, that you earn that as time goes on. And, uh, and then you'll find out that some of those individuals who maybe were hesitant at the beginning they will become some of your strongest supporters because you have demonstrated yourself to them and, and they'll get behind you. So it does take time, uh, just like it would take if you, not even an age issue, and age just adds another factor. But you go into a new environment, new relationship, people don't know you. They, they're, they're waiting to, to get to know you, to understand you, to see you. So you have to have confidence in yourself going in there and be secure and not let insecurities cause you to do unhealthy things that could be disruptive. Uh, and then set things back. And sometimes when we're confident in ourselves and we refuse to let insecurities, uh, you know, cause us to do things we shouldn't do, 
we're spiritual leaders too. God, God seems to work in those areas and soften and support us also. That's a great answer. I would just like to underscore it. I became academic dean, dean of students at the age of 24. So I was leading the faculty as the youngest member of the faculty. And many students were almost my age. My wife was 20, so um, where she's so relational, but because of my, and she enrolled as a student, so it was Brother Bernard and Connie. <laughs> but uh, so I would say number one is what he just mentioned, competence. You have to have an inner confidence in your calling. Number two is competence. You just need to work harder than everybody else or, you know, just need to show I'm not here because of favoritism or nepotism or whatever, I'm here because I'm going to do a really good job. And then they will defer to that because everybody wants to succeed. So if you lead in a few wins, you're going to win them over. But then third, I would say, particularly talking to elders and particularly maybe when there's a strong cultural feeling, I, I said last night, choose your battles wisely. So I would even go further and say, let give honor every time you can. Let them win every time you're, you can, that you can. Any inconsequential decision, let them get their way and just save your influence for when it's critical to the mission. So 90% of the time, you're honoring them, letting them speak first, letting them sway the crowd or help make the decision, and you just wait until it's a critical moment and you just save your influence for when it really counts. All right, maybe one more question. Yeah, right here. I was just wondering if you guys have any, um, like, podcast recommendations on, you know, cultivating, like, new leaders or book recommendations. I'm sure um, we read all of your books, but, like, just anything to kind of, you know, go outside of this session here. The General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church has a podcast that comes out on every Monday, and I, <laughs> it's not on leadership, though, although I do do some leadership things. Restorationists. I'll give you some good uh, books. Um, in the UPCI at Pentecostal Resources Group, PentecostalPotion.com, anything by Eugene Wilson, anything by J. Mark Jordan. Now, his books were written some years ago, but I find them very relatable, very practical. Um, so, so look up Mark Jordan, look up Eugene Wilson, and, and uh, Stan Gleason has some recent good books. So those are three UPCI authors on leadership. There are many other authors that I, I have read, but um, I don't just follow them. Now, I do have... The, my book, Spiritual Leadership in the 21st Century, which I use as a training curriculum in, in our church. So um, that's what I would recommend from a UPCI apostolic perspective. I would say also outside, if uh, Brother Bernard sort of detailed those, uh, really easy read for those who are wanting to dive into is Patrick Lencioni. Um, he's done several type books. He's sort of like a fable. Uh, narrative, sort of like we would read the Gospels or Acts, and then he draws out principles from that. Uh, so a lot of a lot of his are are easy read, and yet has some really great things in there too. And as far as podcasts, I would say Christian Leader Made Simple with Ryan Franklin and the Restorationist. 
personally to UPCI people, I would recommend. All right, I want to end on a on a on a positive note. Hopefully, it's a positive note, Brother Bernard, Brother Coltharp. Could you talk briefly about the benefit of a good second chair? Well, the a benefit of a second chair for me, and and styles are different, but I want somebody I can trust that I can be open to, that I can share almost everything unless it's highly confidential. Because I want, what I want is someone who can expand my work so they can implement things that I don't have time to implement and they can take the time to figure out how to do it instead of me having to figure it out and tell them what to do, they figure it out. So that's one thing. Is, is a doer, an implementer, someone who can do the details, who can come up with plans that I don't have time or desire to come up with. But second, I do want an advisor. And I've always tried to give the second person, whether it's my personal administrative assistant or a, associate pastor, executive vice president, I always give them the liberty. If I'm drafting a key letter or a key email, I let them look at it. And even if it's my secretary, as I said, I give them liberty to say, now, Brother Bernard, are you sure you want to say that sentence? I think it might be perceived slightly different than the way you're intending. You know, I'd rather make the mistake to them than make the mistake to the whole constituents. So I think it's vitally important. There have been times where I've drafted things or I've rehearsed what I'm going to tell somebody in a meeting and the second person has significantly either helped me to delay it, to change it, or to be more effective in communicating it. So I highly rely on a second person for a second opinion, especially if I know they, you know, they have my best interest at heart. They're not going to undermine me or have a different agenda. They know my agenda. They know my heart. They know my intention. They can make sure I fulfill it instead of mess it up. Yeah, I, everything that uh, Brother Bernard just said, uh, times two, I, I just think that all of those things are so important. Uh, probably, maybe the older you get, the more you're aware of your strengths and your weaknesses, and that you need other people in your life on your team. And in fact, even um, now, sort of when Sister Russell told the story, Brother Bernard was present when, when he brought her on into that role. Uh, when I was asked to consider Urshan, I, I had frank conversations with Brother Bernard one-on-one, -on -one, and my questions were not about everybody that worked here. My questions were primarily about her because I understood that if I'm going to be successful and even want to do the job, if you can't enjoy the people that you're working with, life is too short <laughs> to be in, an, in a miserable environment that there's not trust, there's politics, all of those things. So in uh, the people that are close to me, uh, whether it's a, a district church here, it's got to be people that you can trust and who will speak into you and, and who are okay when you, when you do what you feel, even after all the cons consulting and the ideas, and you still feel this is the direction, then they get on board with it as well in that healthy relationship. And so that was a big part of me as well as somebody who's already here. Can this work together? Absolutely. I thought it was a perfect... Um analogy that Sister Russell used about when Sully put the plane in the Hudson of him and the co-pilot working together, sometimes even, you know, without using words, and this is a terrible thought, but I thought, of course, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow, 
<laughs> and I was talking with Brother Bernard, and we're actually on the same plane tomorrow. And I thought, this is a terrible thought. I don't even know why I'm sharing it. But I thought, if this plane goes down, nobody's going to care that I was on the plane. The headline will be, David Bernard, General Superintendent of the UBC. I mean, I might be a footnote. Other minister, other person. Don't worry, I'll pray. All right. Yeah, I, all right. I feel safe. I feel safer now. But yeah, so if it goes down, know that I was on the plane too, all right? Not just Brother Bernard. So that's a terrible thing to think about. But anyway, all right. We are going to take a 25-minute uh, break. We're going to start back at noon. Brother um, Soto is going to do our final session for this afternoon. Of course, we're coming back this evening. But we're going to give you a, a nice break, go down, get a coffee, go to the restroom talk and meet somebody. But before we do that, let's give a big hand to Sister Russell for our lesson in this panel. They did a great job. So we'll see you right at noon. Brother Soto is going to close us out.